You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Wednesday, Canada, if we can say that in a time of crisis, but I know there's lots going on in the world, and we are focusing a lot lately on the war in Ukraine, and we have to because it's got earth-shattering consequences. Today, the... Bank of Canada raised the key interest rate, the benchmark rate, 0.25 ba- or 225 basis points to 0.5. Look, this is all baked in, and I know Amanda Lang is going to join us to talk about it. It's not going to have a long, a quick impact on inflation because other things are inflating. Because of the war, you know that. The price of oil, 112 bucks U.S. a barrel, the highest since... 2014. There's going to be economic consequences that we're all going to feel because of this. And I want you to put out a, pull out your mental blank sheet of paper. Pull it out. Take your imaginary pen as if you're doing your daily budgets for your household And you calculate the costs of living. And I want you to write down mentally COD. COD. And it does stand for cost of democracy. Because that's where we are right now. What is the cost of democracy? And there are things we've got to reestablish when we're calculating the COD cost of democracy is going to go up. We are about to enter a profound debate about military equipment. Billions and billions of dollars will be poured into our military for the, quote, cost of democracy. That means it won't go to hospitals and it won't go to education. Your tax dollars will go to defense. Cost of democracy. 75 years of peace and prosperity in the Cold War. Cost of democracy is about to go up. Because of Vladimir Putin. And I want to read you something last night. Because one thing people ask is one of the costs of democracy to protect democracy is to protect reality. And I know that sounds crazy. But what I mean by that is a rational debate. And I know here there's an age of disinformation and lies and there's accusations of fake news. And I get that. There's a profitable political market in doubt and cynicism and distrust and in calling people fake and in turning on the media. I understand that. It's happening here in Canada and it's happened in the United States. It's consequential. But I want, I want to read you something that the Russian embassy put out last night. The Russian embassy in Canada. And I want... This to stand as what is on the other side when we abandon facts and we turn towards conspiracies or when we decide that there's no such thing as truth, that this plays into the hands of a dictator. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be skeptical and ask questions or trust governments. We should be skeptical, but not cynical. 
let me read you this because the world without a democracy and a free press and a judicial system and a coherent strategy of reason and facts leads to this. This is the Russian version of the war in Ukraine. Quote, at least for two decades now, Russia has been consistently conveying its concern over the enlargement of NATO, a clear threat to our security. Remember, NATO has not threatened Russia, but they see it that way because they lost the Soviet bloc. Next sentence. On multiple occasions, we proposed feasible solutions to provide for equal and indivisible security in Europe and the Euro-Atlantic. Russia would like a veto on who joins NATO. That's not how NATO works, but this is their point of view. I'm going to keep reading. About what they've talked about here. Listen to this. This is what they say. Russia continues its special military operation to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. So it's not a war. This is the doublespeak. This is George Orwell territory. Russia continues its special military operation. This is a special military operation. They've got 150,000 troops invading. They're shelling. They're bombing. But this is just a special military operation. Their goal is to demilitarize a sovereign nation. And they say denazify. This is important because they keep alleging that Ukraine is run by Nazis, not President Zelensky, who happens to be Jewish, whose grandfather fought against the Nazis. The Russian army does not occupy Ukrainian territory. Okay. They literally do right now. And takes all measures to preserve the lives and safety of civilians. It is a lie. These are blatant. This is the lack of reality. They're indiscriminately bombing downtown cores of the two largest cities. We've seen a part, we've seen the evidence of civilians dying. Buildings, apartment buildings being shelled. The strikes are targeting military facilities only. Lie. We know that. We've seen the pictures. And being carried out exclusively with high precision weapons. Lie. I say that because we have seen what's happening on the ground. We will talk to people on the ground today. You can see pictures for yourself. We are witnessing an unprecedented wave of lies, they write, fake news and distorted and fabricated facts aimed at discrediting our actions. Goebbels-style Western propaganda was predictable. Goebbels, of course, ran the Nazi propaganda. They have called our news Goebbels-style Western propaganda. They invade a country. There are now... Close to 800,000 refugees who have fled the country. Cities are being bombed. Lives are being lost. And this is Goebbels-style propaganda. It cannot be trusted. The public in Canada understand that. This is their part of their war, is to make people distrust everything. Once you distrust the government, science, the media, the, the legal system, and this is the conspiracy pit, this plays into the hand of Putin, who then cuts off the media and invents a real reality. This is what dictatorships do. They create realities. That's why the media in Russia is suppressed. There's no free media. That's why he's hyper-suppressing it. And then he writes... The truth is different. Crime, crimes against humanity and violations of international humanitarian law are committed by the armed forces of Ukraine and such neo-Nazi groups as Azov. Now, Azov, there are far-right fascist groups in Ukraine. In every country, there are. But the idea that 
they are invading this country to stop the Nazis and crimes against humanity is a distorted fake reality that does not has no bearing on facts they will take a sliver of fact in in canada in the united states and france there are always far right groups that does not give you the the option as a pretext to invade and call the entire country of a democratically elected leader a nazi the ukraine side is deploying multiple launch rocket systems and artillery in the courtyards of residential buildings, hospitals, schools, and kindergartens. That's what they're saying. Oh, the Ukrainians are fighting using human shields there. That's why we have to shell hospitals, residential buildings, schools, and come on. The armed forces of Ukraine, nationalist and neo-Nazi groups, are using civilian infrastructure and population as human shields. Are there far-right members of of the Ukraine military? Yeah, we know that. Our free media has documented that here in Canada. What they say is, I'll I'll read the end here. They say, the Russian army is fighting neither Ukraine nor Ukrainians. What the hell is going on? You're not fighting Ukrainians and you've invaded their country? The, The tasks to clear Ukraine of Nazism and demilitarize it will be accomplished. This is what, how they're selling this. Russia is not starting wars. Russia is ending them. That is what the Russian embassy put out. This, when you lose touch with reality, you buy into the deadly fictions of a dictator. The deadly fictions and counter-reality to justify an illegal slaughter that is going on in Ukraine. Be very careful abandoning facts and reason. Because that is part of Putin's war. We'll take a break. We'll talk inflation next. Making sense of the latest news. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program. We will be in uh, go live to Lviv in western Ukraine. Paul Workman will join us. Um, there'll be a debate about whether there should be a no-fly zone over Ukraine. The former chief of the defense staff, General Hilliard, told me on Power Play last night, he's arguing we should have a no-fly zone. Most countries realize a no-fly zone means you're going to be in aerial combat. That's war against Russia. That could escalate in a nuclear war. But we'll talk to the former... Um, commander of Canada's special forces, our JTF-2, our Kansoff. Um, Steve Day is going to join us on that in the military fight. But in the meantime, today, in the midst of this war, something happened that was predictable. The Bank of Canada raised its benchmark interest rate 0.5%, uh, and 2.5%, rather, uh, 25 basis points, 2.5%. Uh, this was predictable, but what does it mean? What's driving inflation? And then Joe Biden last night had the State of the Union, or, God, I I was coaching hockey for a lot of it, thank God, but I had to watch it on replay. Man, it was a snoozer. But uh, Amanda Lang, BNN Bloomberg anchor of Taking Stock and a new podcast and a weekly business program on Bell Media Networks like BNN, CP24, CTV News Channel, and all throughout the uh, known universe joins us now. Thank God I was play- I was coaching hockey last night because I watched that State of the Union and, and I'll get to it in a second. But whew. well, I didn't think. I mean, listen, I you know he, I'm 
there's a lot to be said about Joe Biden and, and the content, but it, was, it didn't lift me off my feet, Amanda. I mean, there has been this analysis that it didn't do the big pivot that he was hoping to do, um, or you could argue the flip side of that, which is he's had to handle an awful lot for uh, the leader of the free world. And uh, the the response to what's happening in Ukraine uh, is obviously also uh, created more cohesion, both in that in that body of government, but also in the world. I will give him credit for handling Ukraine. They I think there's been an, an enormously a transformative Powerful. event yeah. in the West, and in terms of the sanctions and the response, um, it has been remarkable, the acts of unity. And and that's all driven by basically the United States, and I would say probably Germany as well, mm-hmm. and the UK. But let, let's talk about that in a minute. I, I, let's get to the inflation, because everyone is, is worried about that, and, I, and I've yeah. got you here. Um, what do we need to know about this, this the, finally, the rise in interest rates that you've been talking about for months? I mean, we, as you said, it was telegraphed. We know it's coming. We know more are on the way. This is what you might call the worst time of all for savers, because savers who've been penalized for, I don't know, about 13 years now, uh, because low rates mean you get nothing on your savings. You get nothing on safe investments. You've got to go, go into risky things to get any hope of return. Uh, you're still going to get virtually nothing, right? A half, a 0.25 uh, increase puts us at half our percent. It's very low, Evan, so it's not as though it's going to break anybody. It's certainly not going to increase your return on those safe investments, but your costs will go up. So if you're on a fixed income, your savings don't increase, but your costs have just increased. And the the increase in costs can be, you know, uh, it's not immaterial over the course of a month or a year. And uh, as we know, a lot of Canadians live close to the edge. So there's that piece of it, this kind of steady march higher of our expenses that will cool our spending and the economy. And that's just the nasty side effect of trying to rein in inflation, you, we have to be in the middle of that. We are the cannon fodder of that fight. However, uh, there are some other things that are going to happen, and that is when the Bank of Canada takes step two, which is to reduce the size of its own balance sheet. It's a little more technical. It's a little less visible. That does have a contracting effect on our economy through the banks and the housing market. And that, well, could, that's where you get into the tricky area of do you actually tip over into a recession? Do you actually cause you know, more problems than the one you're trying to solve. That's the finesse of these next few months. That's the few months, but I guess the question is how far does it go and how long does it last? I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty. Obviously, we know there's inflationary pressure coming from what's happening in Ukraine. At the pump, it will be real. It will be material. Uh, But having said that, both our central bank and in the U.S., uh, Jay Powell, the head of the, the U.S. Federal Reserve, have noted that the economic sanctions that we're all imposing on Russia have consequences for us, too. This is a one-way street. And so we actually could see weakness in trade. I almost hate to say the word allowed, right, because we've all been through so much. But just as we're emerging from this pandemic, we may well see global recessionary factors being introduced by sanctions. And that actually would send our banks in the other direction, right? They They would start lowering rates in a case like that. So... I wouldn't actually want to put, a, you know, anything important on a bet about which way we land in six months' time. I don't know. It really does depend on how long the situation goes on uh, in, in Russia, how long the sanctions last, how serious they are, and how much we feel them here. But in the short term, inflationary pressures are real. They're going to get worse. Your own costs are going up. They went up today. They're probably going to go up next month. Uh, so it's still time for all of us to do our bit 
and actually get our act together. You still have time. Uh, and it's boring stuff, and it's live within your means stuff, and we've all heard it a million times. It's actually time to focus on it and make sure we're doing it. I, I was calling it earlier as I speak to uh, BNM Bloomberg's Amanda Lang, the COD, not cost on delivery, not the video game Call of Duty, but the cost of democracy. And, and, and I think people are going to have to put that on their economic ledgers now. Um, there is now, for the first time, in many, many generations, a cost of democracy. Hmm. And there's going to be inflationary pressures. There's going to be a reinvestment in military. Look at Germany. Uh, They're going to hit the 2% of GDP on military investment. Canada's going to have to up its cost. Cost of democracy is going up. I like that. I like that as a way of thinking about it, Evan, because it also, for those of us who, you know, have the good fortune to have lived through uh, decades and decades of peace, global peace, um, you know, we we are now contemplating a time when what what you what you value and what you believe in does cost. It costs in in moral, physical, economic it costs in every way you can imagine. Uh, I hope that unlike previous periods, the costs are evenly distributed. I hope that we do a better job than we did in in previous world wars, for instance, of making sure that there's not disproportionate suffering on certain groups of society. Um, I think we will. I think we're structured that way a little bit better. But that would be my fear, is that some will bear the bigger burden. As and they will. The and it you happens. Savers like have borne the, the brunt of this whole exercise of low rates for the last 10 years. Your, your mom, my mom, uh, are the front line. You know, they've, they've paid a literal price for the rates that have kept our economies chugging along. Uh, is that fair? Not really, but it's, it's how it's been. Speaking of Amanda Lang, you're, you're 100% right, but uh, the cash on delivery is going to be your cost of democracy. And, and I keep telling people on your mental ledger, put that on because it's going to happen and it's going to happen for a long time to come. Uh, Joe Biden re-upped his Buy American. The American economy grew 5.7% last year. That's that's consequential. But, of course, the benchmark was in the, in the crappy COVID year before. But mm-hmm. here's what he said about Buy American. Well, Buy America to make sure every, everything from the deck of an aircraft carrier to the steel on highway guardrails is made in America from beginning to end. All of it. All of it. Semiconductors, cars, EVs. Yeah. What Can do I we make say, of that? What do we no, make they, of the no, buy No, they won't. No, they won't. That's the, the absolute ridiculous rhetoric. Now, it sounds good. Maybe it plays well. Uh, you can't do it, first of all. They don't make everything you need for an aircraft carrier in their country, nor should they. It's a pretty old economic principle that you let other people do things they do well, you do things you do well, and you trade them. Uh, so the idea that you would do everything at home. And there's another reality, too, which is we have integrated trade. Uh, there are big, big, deep-pocketed American businesses who, uh, who have already structured their affairs, trading with other countries, uh, manufacturing in other countries. And whether you like it or not, they control the U.S. government. The lobby power, as you know, of, of corporations is huge. So I trust in the corporations. They are global. They believe in capitalism and free markets and globalization, and that it would be pretty hard to remove. Now, will they do dumb short-term steps so that it looks like they're buying American? Yes. And I hope that we have good trade lawyers, you know, in, in the Ottawa government on alert to every time. I mean, it's the auto sector that, that's worried, right? It's uh, the yep. auto sector. And it's not just buy American and in supply chain security. It's also incentives to buy American that essentially become industry killers. That's right. But we have an agreement. I mean, we have a trade agreement. We need to, we need to enforce it. We need to be tough. Uh, and, of course, we need to just gently remind the, our neighbors to the south and even yeah. beyond them in Mexico that we all benefit when we share this trade zone. So and they, everybody knows it. it the, I think the economic reality and the political rhetoric are very far apart uh, on this. It, one, I don't one, worry. 
one thing about the, this terrible war in Ukraine, it is reminding the U.S., you want to live by the rule of law? Yep. Live by it. And we'll remind them that on the trade route, too. Uh, Amanda Lang from BNM Bloomberg, great to have you on the program as ever. Brilliant, kind, and humane. Uh, speaking of brilliant, kind, and humane, Paul Workman is in Ukraine. He joins us live next. As your world changes, we adapt to get your answers. Now more with Evan Solomon. We have some breaking news. The United Nations has just voted to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine and call for an immediate Russia withdrawal, even as talks are going on. Uh, the vote was 141 of the 193 states voted for the resolution. 35 abstained, five voted against. I'm looking at the list. Obviously, Russia, Belarus... Uh, the Democratic um, uh, Republic of Korea, Eritrea, and the Russian Federation and Syria all opposed. What's interesting, the notable um, countries that abstained that you might want to know, Algeria, Bolivia, Bangladesh, China, Congo, Cuba, El Salvador, India, Iran and Iraq, Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan. Mongolia, Pakistan, South Africa, those are some that you might, and Vietnam, interestingly enough. Um, what's going, get, let's get the latest, though, from, from Ukraine. That's what's happening in New York at the United Nations. But Paul Workman's on the ground where the human suffering is real. He's in Lviv, which is in the um, western part of Ukraine. The uh, war is now in day seven. He's our chief international correspondent for CTV National News, Paul uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, can, can you give us what you are seeing and what is the latest from Ukraine? It seems that the Russian plan to encircle uh, and bomb cities in Ukraine are, it, it's playing out now. We saw it today again in um, Kharkiv, where uh, a university building was hit. And yesterday, the Russian forces bombed the center of the city, Freedom Square, there are also reports the Russians are claiming that they've taken over the city of Kherson in the south, which is an important port. Uh, it's a video of Russian tanks down the middle of the sound going down the middle of the city on the main street. The mayor of Kherson says no, but there Ukraine, Ukraine is still in control of the municipal building. But this is kind of an important um, seizure. It would be the biggest city that the Russians have taken so far. And it would open up the Russian forces to move to the west, towards Odessa, and to the east, towards Mariupol. And that would put them in a position to be able to control most of the southern coast. So you can see where this is all going, Evan. Movement in the south, movement in the northeast, at Kharkiv, and, of course, towards Kiev. With that incredible convoy that we've all talked about and seen, Heading towards the city, um, obviously going to lay siege to Kiev, um, probably within the next 24, 48 hours. Nobody's sure. Nobody's, like, nobody's really sure, but everybody's quite afraid in that city. Speaking of Paul Workman, he is on the ground in Lviv, which is in western Ukraine. Uh, Paul, it is remarkable. Um, I, I guess the Russians underestimated the resistance. It does not mean that they're going to stop. Um, but is there is there a sense that 
uh, Kiev, the capital, Kharkiv in the northeast, the second largest city, and as you say, that key port city on the Baltic, Odessa, are these inevitably going to come under heavy uh, Russian attack? It seems as if the second stage of this is going to be hitting Russian, hitting Ukrainian cities and hitting them hard, you know, carpet bombing, keeping up the uh, aerial attacks until the cities give in, until the cities cave, until the government of Ukraine capitulates. You know, a slave siege takes time. You know, cutting off water, cutting off electricity, cutting off supplies, squeezing the population that's there. But it's a very effective uh, form of warfare, and it looks as if that's what Russia is trying to do. We see shades of what they did in Chechnya and what they did in Syria happening in Ukraine. Their neighbor, their democratic neighbor, a lot of people in Ukraine speak, speak Russian. In Kharkiv, everybody has family on both sides of the border, and yet it's been a, an, an extraordinary target of Russian forces. And maybe that's a warning to other cities in Ukraine, hey, this is what may be coming to you next. Speaking to Paul Workman, Paul, what, what about these... These talks that keep emerging again, we're, we're hearing there's talks again, possible talks. What do we know about that? We don't know very much. We don't know where they're going to be held, if they're held at all. The Russians have said that they're willing to go and would send their delegation. It's a little unclear as to whether Ukraine will, in fact, attend. I suspect they will. They were supposed to happen this evening, uh, you know, my time now. Uh, what they will achieve, it's hard to say, probably not very much. The Ukrainians have said, look, you can't hold peace talks and bombs that fall from the sky on, on our civilians on our, and our, on our people. Ukraine wants a ceasefire. They think that might be something they could po- possibly get to give them time to negotiate um, a little more, something a little more permanent. Uh, speaking again, Paul Workman, the refugee crisis where you are, what are you seeing in Lviv? Can you give us a sense of what, what kind of activity you see there? In the middle of kind of like a transit point, a lot of people, thousands, are coming by train if they can from Kiev to get to, uh, to get to where we are in Lviv, and then they'll carry on through Poland or to other countries. A young Canadian I spoke to this morning was getting onto a bus here. He made it out of Kiev yesterday and was able to get onto a, a bus to get to Poland to get to Krakow and from there to try to get back to Canada. The numbers are, are staggering: eight hundred thousand. So far, who've come out of Ukraine, according to the United Nations, that's their figure. And it's rising. I mean, almost as quickly as you get a figure, the number has gone up a few thousand more. So it's very hard to tell, but Europe's extremely worried that there could be a million, two million, three million Ukrainians coming in their direction. Paul Workman, there are reports that Russia is utilizing something called a thermobaric bomb, a vacuum bomb. Uh, which is, by the way, a war crime. It's an aerosol bomb. It essentially uh, explodes and uh, ignites a cloud and basically sucks the oxygen out. And, and the, I guess they vaporize people. Like inside a building, the rocket can la- land outside the building. Is there any evidence of that kind of use of these horrific weapons yet? Not that I've heard, not that I've seen. There are accusations that the Russians are using cluster bombs which most of the world considers to be illegal. Uh, Russia and Belarus have not signed on to any of the protocols about cluster bombs. So I think, and the accusations seem pretty accurate. I've seen video, and you've probably seen it as well, Evan, showing, yeah. showing towns, uh, showing Kharkiv under attack, really, 
with what looked to be a series of, uh, of cluster bombs. That's as much as I know uh, about other weapons. I'm not really sure. I haven't heard specific accusations coming necessarily from Ukrainian defense, defense officials. Uh, Paul, just before I let you go, give us a mm-hmm. sense of the of, of just the attitude in Ukraine. I spoke to a young Canadian who joined up. He's fighting in Odessa. He got one hour training. President Zelensky is emerging as, as an enormously compelling and heroic figure. What is the sense as the Russian pincer maneuver and their uh, closes and their weapons pour in? What is the sense you're getting speaking with Ukrainians? definitely want to stand up and defend their country, and they're saying it quite bravely. And a lot of young people, a lot of young men especially, are buying weapons, getting weapons given to them by the state, and, and going to war. I had a young producer who was working for me here for a few days. He, he, uh, he came to me a couple of days ago and said, look, I, I can't stay and work with you anymore. I have to go and, um, I have to go and fight. I mean, it's time to get to, to Kiev. It's it's early in the war. It's seven days. It's you know, and this bravo, this bravado to carry out carry weapon and and, and defend the country is very strong. It's being pushed to ad- adrenaline, really. How long that will last? Evan, once the bombs from you know Russian airplanes and jets, warplanes start falling, and it turns into a grinding, horrible, terrible, bloody battle what the resolve will be then from uh, the people of Ukraine. It's very difficult to know. You can't estimate that kind of thing. If the past is prologue, these are not short, and these are not bloodless. Uh, Paul Workman uh, of CTV, he is um, in Lviv. He's done a great work, our chief international correspondent for CTV National News. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Evan. Thank you very much. Paul Workman, who has uh, seen all too much battlefield coverage. Um, Speaking of someone who's been on the front lines, the former Canadian Special Forces commander in Canada, Steve Day. This guy is is trained to be the sharpest end of the sharpest stick that we have. This is our best military mind on the ground. What is his assessment right now of the forces of what NATO needs to do? What is his assessment of the idea of a no-fly zone? We're going to talk about the no-fly zone and General Hillier's suggestion that we need one. Would that lead to nuclear war? That's next. Finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Last night on CTV's Power Play, I spoke to the retired General Rick Hillier. Now, he is the former chief of the defense staff, and he conducted our forces in Afghanistan when we first entered the war there. He joins me a lot on the program You know Rick Hillier. And I asked him about the war in Ukraine, and he, like others, have said it is time for a no-fly zone. You know what they need overall more than anything else is a no-fly zone. And to say that that might be escalatory, I think that shows the lack of uh, backbone in NATO right now. We need a no-fly zone. To say that might be escalatory, in other words, it might escalate the Russian war, shows the lack of backbone in NATO right now. Now, before I play the next clip, I want to tell you something. That I'll give you a quick backstory. 
um, we have used no-fly zones before. In the 90s, they were uh, not unpopular, right? 1992, in the Balkans conflict, the UN had a resolution, and there was a no-fly zone. There was a no-fly zone in 1991 in the first Gulf War. No-fly zones in Iraq. There was a no-fly zone in 2011 in Libya. Bosnia and Libya enforced by NATO. This is different. This is a no-fly zone against Russia. Russia's a nuclear power. Russia's um, Foreign Affairs Minister Lavrov said yesterday that this could lead to nuclear war. I'm going to bring in Steve Day because this is a very important discussion. What more? I don't think NATO's been weak. I don't think NATO, I think the Western response has been strong, but I want to give Steve Day, the former Canadian Special Operations Forces commander, now the founder and president of Reticle Ventures Canada Incorporated, a security company. He knows this field extremely well. Thank you for your service to our country, Steve Day. All right. Um, Steve, what do you make of Rick Hill? You're saying NATO's too weak. To, we need a no-fly zone, whereas NATO says you got to enforce it, and that will lead to nuclear war. This is not the time for a no-fly zone. Well, I think part of the challenge, um, Evan, is that it, it's one thing to talk about the no-fly zone, but like you've already stated, to actually put that into effect means you need to be prepared to clear that airspace, dominate that airspace, and maintain the domination of that airspace. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm not saying we should do it. But if we are going to do it, it is, make no mistake about it, an escalation of what the West is trying to do. Now, is there some way that we could um, try and finesse that in? Well, I don't know that you know, a no-fly zone is a finessable move, if that's even a word. So can, can I see a space where we get to that? Um, I could, but that is a significant ramping up of the overall risk of this conflict. I'm speaking to Steve Day. Um, <clears throat> a no-fly zone is war. Le- the, there's too many uh, Russian helicopters and Russian jets in the air that NATO starts shooting those down. That's a hot war. And, and all of a sudden things go, things are very different. And NATO has no interest in it. I, I don't think this is showing no backbone for NATO. Now, the argument is if you don't do it over Ukraine and you lose Ukraine, you're going to have to do it for Poland and Latvia. But those are NATO countries. What what's your military assessment of how this is going? What the Russians are doing, and, and Steve Day, what, how NATO and the West is re- and the Ukraine is responding? Well, I think I think overall we're we're really starting to see the, the sharper edges and contours now of the of the larger Russian strategy, and they're executing their strategy, you know, and from this from a professional perspective, pretty much according to their plan. I would suggest they're, they've they've isolated the country. They're starting to isolate the cities. They're going to choke off those cities, and then they're going to go in and try and decapitate the the Ukrainian regime and hopefully not have to get into the street-to-street fighting or trying to suppress 40 million people. Whether that's achievable will be, you know, that's the unknown in war, right? The fog of war. How does this unfold? But thus far... It seems pretty clear what they're trying to achieve, and as long as they don't, you know, rush to failure, hate to use that term, they are going to be able to lay siege to those built-up areas. 
I, I agree that they're going to lay siege, but what does the first seven days tell you? Uh, they have. They, it seems to me, and again, this is not. This does not mean that they're not going to accomplish their objective. Their losses seem heavier. Their progress seems slower. The resistance seems more robust. The Western support, both economically and now militarily, seems significantly more unified. Uh, can those be going to Putin's plan? Well, and I don't necessarily disagree with the number of the points you've just made, but I, w- I would just say in this type of warfare, um, seven days is nothing. We're on the opening shift here of a hockey game in the first period. He's got a plan that he's been executing since last summer. Phase zero would have been all of the reconnaissance, deep reconnaissance, intelligence operatives, special operators, uh, paramilitary forces going in and getting all the reconnaissance done. They've been doing that for months, if not years. They're now bringing in that overwhelming general purpose force, and they're slowly feeding it into the country because the last thing they want to do is too early rile up that population so that their own lines of communication, their own supply columns can get cut. And that's why as you look at 30, 40, 50, 60 kilometer supply lines, they're administratively um, um, arrayed in the battle space right now, which tells me they're not worried about being attacked. They're not leaguered up. They're not dispersed. They're sitting there waiting for the green light to go. So I actually think seven, eight days into this, they are slowly executing their plan to get those general purpose forces around those built-up areas. They had a group, I'm speaking to Steve Day, there's a private military group called the Wagner Group. I know know that's not their official name, but it's run by a billionaire who we've sanctioned called Yevgeny Prigozhin, known as Putin's chef, a close friend, a billionaire, and an oligarch. These are bad guys. Apparently there's hundreds, maybe thousands of them there. They're there to decapitate uh, literally the government and kill Zelensky. What do we know about this group and how dangerous are they? Well, again, if you if you look at hybrid warfare, hybrid techniques, this is exactly what we're seeing right now. We've got cyber attacks. We've got general purpose military forces. You've hit on it there. You've got mercenaries or private military contractors. There's criminal groups. And basically Russia's going in there and trying to take this society apart without having to fully commit all of their two to three million person military. They're using all the different right. elements of national power to overwhelm and slowly strangle that, that the Ukrainian regime. Commander Steve Day, um, our former commander of Kansov, and now the president of Radical Securities, over the next number of days, weeks, and likely months, we'll need your point of view as you assess what's going on. And I really thank you. Uh, you're clear-sighted. Um, you're trained for this, and we really appreciate your, your service, but also your insight here, Steve. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Evan. Yeah, keep coming back. That's Steve Day. Um, honestly, and I mean this sincerely, you know, you got Dave Fraser, you got Steve Day, you got General Andrew Leslie. We have some Canadians here that know this kind of battlefield better than anybody in the world. They are smart, and it is an honor to have them on the program. It really is. These are the people you want to speak with. Um, The war room, the politics of war, and what Canada's response is next. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. The Russians continue to bomb. The refugee crisis continues 
700,000 people have poured out of Ukraine fleeing the Russians. The Russian propaganda machine continues to churn out a counter-reality where the Russians are defending Ukraine, not attacking it, where the Ukrainians are fascists and the dictators, and the Russians are somehow involved in a minor special operation as opposed to a deadly, illegal, and brutal war. It is day seven in what is an extraordinary period of time that's on upending history. 70 years of Germany being a essentially demilitarized, passive country. They've reversed course. They're arming up 2% of their GDP. They're sending weapons to a conflict zone for the first time. Finland on the border of Russia sending weapons. Switzerland neutral, taking a stand. Putin is alone outside of his client states like Belarus. And he's uniting the West, Canada among them, sending anti-tank weapons. But this is far from over. Despite the sanctions, despite the weapons, Putin is dangerous, well-armed, is sitting on a pile of money, and where is this going? It is time to bring in the politics of a changing world, a world that we did not imagine literally a week ago. It is time for the war room. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The War Room. It was a world we thought was over. A world that we thought we'd studied and lived through. A Cold War world. A Soviet world. But it's back. And it's back with a deadly, ruthless urgency. Zane Velgia, political campaign strategist and partner at Northweather, joins me. Uh, Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst, former NDP leader, and Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies. Gentlemen, uh, first of all, welcome to the program. Um, Tom, I'll start with you. Um, We should not pretend that this is an event. This is a turning point. Give me your sense first. Let's let's start at the at, at the significance of this and how this is going to alter our world, and then we'll get down to the hard the raw politics of it. Tom, as Biden started telling the world a couple of months ago that this is exactly what the Russians were going to do, there were people who just didn't believe him. And then when it happened, people are saying, "Oh my God, why weren't we ready for it?" Now the Ukrainians are giving the world a lesson in courage. Everybody's scrambling to catch up. You gave the list at the beginning. My favorite part was when. Denmark, and you sort of think of peace, you think of places like Denmark. They're encouraging their citizens who want to go to volunteer to go into Ukraine to help fight the Russians. When you saw Sweden, not even a member of NATO, send in thousands of anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons, you knew that Putin had made an unbelievable mistake. It's a black eye, of course, to Russia's place in the world, to their place in history. And this guy, who's been alone for two years, who doesn't look well, doesn't sound well, Mm -hmm. is propelling his country where the people are capable of the best and the government is once again proving that it is capable of the worst. Canada has been doing what it can. The Americans, I I did find Biden a little bit shaky last night. I watched his whole speech. I didn't find him that strong and I didn't find the speech that great. But across the world, people are saying, "Okay, this is a real and present danger and we've got to deal with it. Uh, Tim Powers, by the way, you're right. You compare Biden's delivery, which was shaky. I think mm-hmm. the Americans have been extraordinary in terms of what they've kind of led in terms of support and the unity of the West. But he didn't inspire the way Zelensky inspired. Zelensky has proven to be the most inspirational leader we never knew mm-hmm. we had. Tim Powers. 
Yep, from comedian to uh, a leader the world admires, uh, an interesting transition that has worked well. I tell you, Evan, the way I look at this and listening to Tom uh, speak, it reinforces it for me. Do we have the leaders capable of managing in this new emerging world? We have leaders elected in Canada and elsewhere who came through different political configurations, who are elected through aspects of uh, challenging and, and harnessing domestic populism and the like, and, and, and isolationism, if you will, which contributes to some of the challenges that are here. If you look at the people who led the world uh, after the Second World War, who navigated us through this piece, their skill sets were different, their approaches were different. I'm anxious about that. I'm anxious about it, particularly sitting in the right side of the pew and seeing some of the uh, the rhetoric that's come out from people like Pierre Polyev uh, encouraging a more bellicose Europe, seemingly, Mr. Polyev, not understanding the dynamics of Europe. That all worries me. And the last thing I'd say is then you have that uh, buffoon Trump um, still with such significant influence in the United States and elsewhere. Um, making the most absurd and outlandish global suggestions, which may have a bigger audience than we previously thought. Leadership worries me. Yeah, Tim Powers on that. By the way, I should say something about Zelensky. I know everyone says comedian to, to leader. He did get a law degree. His, his career is actually quite remarkable. He went to law yeah. school, didn't practice, uh, became a business person, started a media company, an actor. I mean, the guy is, is remarkable. And, and in terms of global leadership, the other leader, I would say, is Olaf Scholz, who is mm-hmm. the, the um, uh, chancellor of Germany, who has proven he's upended German history. A remarkable man. Uh, I think, and, and maybe the most significant leader in Europe right now. But uh, what's your sort of 10,000 uh, uh, um, view of this, Zane? Well, let me start with Zelensky. He played the part. So now he's playing the part. He literally played mm-hmm. the part of a guy who becomes president on television. He had a successful TV show where a teacher becomes president. And now he's playing the part of president. And there's a few 10,000 foot views on leadership here. You know, one of them is If you are able to navigate during a volatile, uncertain, complex world, uh, your past sins politically can be washed away. This was a guy that two weeks ago, the world was questioning whether it was up to the task. Now he's heralded as a hero, regardless of what happens in the days coming forward. So there's that perspective. But Evan, your, your framing up front was about this marker, this milestone and what it does to uh, many different facets of our society. And I think there's one I'd like to focus on, which is we have not had a war, a real mm-hmm. war in our social media era. And when we talk about the stress testing of democracy, which we were doing domestically here for like a month uh, with the convoy, we are now seeing it on an international level and propaganda plus social media plus democracy. The world will forever be changed in Eastern Europe with, with Vladimir Putin and what Tom has described. But what social media's prowess, power, uh, and perhaps downfall might be is how it's used in modern, real war. And I think that's something I'm keeping my eye on and that I think will forever change uh, a few dynamics here as well. Evan. And we could talk about that because it is remarkable in Russia for all the, the Internet revolution and social media, the... He has created, uh, basically, Russians don't even know what's going on there. He's created a total blackout outside of some remarkable social media channels reaching a few million people. But it's remarkable. Uh, Tom, just pick up on what Pierre Polyevre, what Tim said about Pierre Polyevre, who essentially said, um, well, let me just play you this clip. He basically said how weak Europe has been. We're in a global crisis. Russia has illegally invaded Ukraine. After years of warning it would. 
And it's been shocking how weak Europe's response has been in the lead up to this tyrant's invasion of this independent country. What, what do you make of that? I don't know, that uh, tick-tocking in the background, maybe that was time running out on his 15 minutes of fame, and uh, now he's in overtime. Look, a- any port in a storm, he's got to try to be noticed. Everybody's talking about the mm-hmm. fact that Jean Charest coming on board. That was the utterances of a wannabe political science student in second-year university. It, it, it didn't even make any sense. It doesn't hang together. It doesn't reflect reality, because we've just talked about all the countries that are stepping up to the plate and going well beyond anything that anybody imagined just a couple of weeks ago. But Pierre Poiliev has weighed them in the balance, and nah, they've all come up short. I mean, what a way to write yourself out of this story. I, I think instead of giving himself, you know, he thought he was going to use a, a Simpsonism, he was going to embiggen himself with that, that particular speech. I think it, it fell so totally flat uh, that people are just scratching their heads saying, this guy wants to lead Canada? Mm, I don't think so. Embiggen. Wow. Okay. Can I, uh, let me take a break. <laughs> $20 words, but Tom will care. Well, but you know, yeah, straight out of the, straight but out if of the it's Simpsons. the Simpsons, it's like, it's a $20 word with the, with the, the popularity of, uh, of a toonie. Okay. Uh, Zane Valji, Tom Mulcair, Tim uh, Powers. Uh, there's lots to talk about gents and, and to try to frame this. People are kind of overwhelmed and I want to drill down on the Canadian political response. And this is a role of Canada moment and, and what leaders should trust. In a time of crisis. That's next. As the story changes, we react. This is the Evan Solomon Show. It's a transformed world, and we've got the war room here. We could do it every day, sadly. Uh, Zane Velji, Tom Mulcair, Tim Powers. As we're trying to make sense of it, and, and, and it is a, it's a complicated world. And, and too often we get caught up in the big, you know, Tim, the big picture, you know, what's shifting, the geopolitics. People are just looking for leaders to trust. And, and let, let's drill down of, on Canada's actions so far. Uh, I mean... This is a time where there's domestic issues. Obviously, we've had COVID. We have the uh, key interest rate uh, going up today. So inflation is a real worry. And then, of course, there's this global context. Canadians are looking for leadership. And and what are you seeing in the positives and the negatives, Tim Powers? Uh, well, the Polyev comments aside, which we've talked about already, there, there does seem to be unity of purpose. So coming off the, the two months that we've come off, particularly the last month, having unity of purpose, and that unity of purpose, recognizing that we need to be together in battling uh, Russians and Russia's invasion of uh, of, the, of Ukraine is, is crucial. I think that's a positive, Evan. That makes me a little bit hopeful. It reminds me of the early days of the pandemic when most people were standing together then. Um, I I think when you look at the prime minister, uh, he's probably, again, feeling that he's made of Teflon because he's escaped some domestic political scrutiny at the moment around the Emergencies Act, its invocation, his role in all of that. Um, That will come back, of course. But I think he's doing the right things, to be fair to Candace Bergen. I think she's shown she has a bit of a better game this go-around, as has Mr. Singh and, and perhaps Mr. Blanchet. When I look across the 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 country I, I get a I don't mean to pick pick again on my friends on the right side of the pew maybe they won't be my friends anymore after this shock will shock you guys will have to be my friends but I um, you know seeing Kenny and Mo position themselves in the opportunity of oil mm. I understand that I get that. 
I just wish they'd take a deep breath sometimes and think about what they're doing, though they each have different political masters to manage. I look out east and I look at my friend, Dr. Fury, the premier of Newfoundland, and I take comfort in what he's saying around refugees and welcoming them to, to Newfoundland and Labrador. So I see some signs of hope, but it's easy to be unified now in the face of this crisis. Mm. I wonder where we're going to go afterwards, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, you, you mentioned the energy crisis. Uh, I go go to Zane, but uh, just one voice I want to give a shout out. Christian Freeland gets a lot of attention, and yep. rightly so. This is a crisis built for her expertise. She literally understands the plutocrats of Russia. She speaks the language in Ukraine. I get it. But maybe on the conservative side, the voice that is so sensible and doesn't get nearly the attention he deserves is Michael Chong, the foreign affairs critic. Mm-hmm. He is sensible. Yeah. He is smart. Um, he is he is a legitimate voice Canadians should listen to as well. I think he, he doesn't get nearly the attention he deserves. He's quiet, but he is so sensible. Zane, just, just the same question to, um, that I asked him, just who, and maybe with a, your sp- take on this, the energy factor, which has played out so heavily where you are in Alberta? Yeah, you know, let me pick up on Chong, and then I'll go into Kenny and Mo. I mean, I agree with the Chong comments, right? Not only the the most sensible, reasonable, quiet, but arguably the most cutting, um, uh, you know, uh, argument he put on the table for not using the Emergencies Act. It was long-winded, but it was, when you looked at the clue of it, back into our domestic politics, it was very, very sharp and could convince a lot of people. And I suspect that to Tim's point, when this kind of takes on chapter two, where we might not be a 90-10 country on this issue, and I think that's a really interesting and important point I'll talk about in a second, that that's where the divergences happen. But on this perspective, I, I when I look at leadership, I think the one thing we need to talk about is the leadership of Canadians overall. What I've realized for the last two years is that on when things really matter, we are a 90-10 country. Vaccinations, 90-10 country. And on this, we're seeing the same results. 90% of Canadians support the Ukrainians on the top line. So on the top line, when things matter, I think we're on the right side or we're, we're, we're kind of collective, much more than perhaps the divisions of the last couple of weeks and couple of months have shown. As it relates to Kenny, I mean, listen, he's come off a surplus budget where the surplus was symbolic. It could have been a lot larger for him. And that's historic for here in Alberta. Haven't had a surplus in 14 years. What Jason Kenny, his political problem is exactly the same. It's probably his Achilles heel, which is he will do anything to win the day. And he does not care what it means to lose the week, the month or the mm-hmm. year. And, and to Tim's point, show some chill, man. Like, show, show some chill, not because it's just the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do to not exploit a international war, but also for your own domestic politics. Winning the day doesn't matter unless it's election day, unless they are tr- voting for you on that day. So I think Jason Kenney's political lesson here is to just show some restraint and not lean in so opportunistically to try to win something that, that is going to be vapid uh, in the coming weeks and months anyways. Yeah, interesting. So that's Zane Velge. Uh Tom, weigh in on this energy. The, uh, both Jason Kenney and Scott Moe have said one of the big keys to this crisis is energy dependence. Look, there, there is a legitimate point that energy drives conflict. It did in the Second World War. It mm-hmm. does in many, many conflicts. The question is, is this, what's the reality of Canada? It's not like pipelines are going to answer the question here, but how do you kind of break out the, the energy debate? That is an important element going on right now. Well, it's going to be played both ways, isn't it? And there's a big, big, big decision coming up concerning Newfoundland Labrador. Tim knows yep. all about it. And uh-huh. <laughs> Stephen Gilbo has been looking at himself in the mirror every day saying, 
I spent 30 years as an environmentalist. What do I do? Because they, mm-hmm. they have to approve or not approve a 30-year project. Uh, that would give a lot of revenue and, and a lot of jobs for Newfoundland Labrador. With regard to Stop Mo and Jason Kenny, you know, you can't stop them from being themselves. They're going to try to see an advantage in it for themselves. Might have gone under the radar, but yesterday there was an interesting setup, an exchange between Blanchette of the Block and Trudeau. Trudeau was so impressed by his question, he called him my honorable colleague. I, first time I ever heard him say that to Blanchette. And then Blanchette spoiled the whole thing by saying, well, I hope it means that we're not going to start producing more oil out west and, and went south from there. So that's the, the backdrop of it. Everybody's going to try to use these big issues. Of course, we've got to get on board to reduce greenhouse gases and do our part to fight climate change. We know that we're in a, in a disaster. But at the same time, we've got a lot of this stuff that can certainly replace what the Russians are going to be using to hold, and sorry for the pun, Western Europe over a barrel. And maybe we can replace some of that stuff. And yes, keep doing our jobs of reducing greenhouse gases. Energy literacy is going to be really key, Tim. And and people are going to have to learn about LNG, liquefied natural gas. There's a $17 billion project we know that's halfway complete on the West Coast. On the East Coast, LNG is also a big deal. But it is not a turn. It is not a, you know, flick the switch solution. It is a give us your sense of that. It, it, it may even never happen. Well, it's not even at, a, at an approval stage. It's in pre-approval stage, uh, the uh, the LNG project on the East Coast, which, yes, if it ever came into fruition, would get liquefied natural gas to Europe much faster and lessen uh, Europe's dependency on uh, on uh, on Russia. But the, the project Tom's talking about, Beta Nord, is a huge project. It's, it's massive and apparently disputes in the cabinet around all of that. But energy is still going to be part and parcel of this debate, as my colleagues have well described, uh, Evan, and it will be fascinating to see if some of the energy, how China weighs in on this. We haven't heard much about China. Where, mm-hmm. Are they going to undercut the Russians? Are they going to support the Russians? There was that meeting in Beijing, as you recall, during the Olympics between Putin and uh, Jing. Uh, what happens with the Chinese? Awfully quiet. That's scary. You want to weigh in, Zane? Yeah, I do. I just want to add to this because where this might triangulate as we kind of proceed to the second chapter is between Freeland and Kenny and the Russian oligarchs in terms of our energy sector. Mm -hmm. Because as Kenny starts tweeting about dictator oil, how this is now the the impetus to, to restart some of the projects that have died on the vine, so to speak. There's a lot of Russian oligarch money in some of the energy projects in Alberta. And yes. this is where the unintended consequences that Freeland talks about yesterday, <laughs> frankly, in, or even frankly, intended consequences could triangulate with issues in Alberta. And this is where Jason Kenney's speech on like, we need to be tough with Russia versus, oh, no, this actually impacts my energy sector. This is where it may come to head. And this is where that divergence of leadership all being aligned might start to fray, yeah. might start to become less aligned in the second chapter of, of un- this unfortunate Just war. to embiggen people's knowledge of that, um, <laughs> the Spartan Delta Corp, and you will know this yeah. because Zane, uh, is invested with a billionaire Russian oligarch, yep. Igor yep, yep, Makarov. Yep. So folks, there's a word you may, you may have never heard of this guy. If you're in the oil patch, you have, but the Russians are investing in, in big oil there. So there you go. I like that. Uh, chill dudes and embiggen your vocabulary. You, you guys always embiggen us. Thank you. Uh, Tim, Zane, Tom. Uh, gents, thanks. Please, please take care. Your, your, your words today, so essential. I really thank the war room today. We're going to take a break. We're going to really take a break next.
talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. We are going to take a break from covering the war for two segments. First, we're going to meet a guy, a 77-year-old grandfather from British Columbia. Get this. He's going to join us at the end of the show because you need something to inspire you. Who spent, he was basically lost at sea on a raft. And he spent five days basically eating nachos. Five days lost at sea. Crackers. Amazing story. You're going to meet him. Trust me, you don't want to miss that. But, you know, in, the, in all the talk about Ukraine, many people have said, hey, we're not talking about COVID. But there's an extraordinary case and a bloody controversial case that just happened about a divorce couple who were disputing about whether or not their, 12, their three kids, 14, 12, and 10, should have to get vaccinated. The mother said no. The father said yes. But the judge cited a well-known doctor who is known to be a discredited anti-vaxxer, which lent the case new and kind of fascinating elements to it. So Kevin Caspers, uh, senior associate lawyer at Shulman and Partners, has been following this, and Kevin joins me now. Can you tell people what this case is all about, Kevin? Well, I, I think this case really, um, I mean, this is, this is a case that, sort of deviates and, and and takes a turn from what we've seen historically as it, as it relates to vaccinations uh, in, in uh, the question of vaccination in the court and a judicial notice that it's a, it's a positive thing. And I, I think this case really stands for the premise that each case um, has to be taken on its own and the circumstances that that particular case presents. And uh, I think that's exactly what Justice Pazarax, uh, who was the judge in this case, did, and uh, hence his decision. Okay, just, just just walk us through the case. So tell me about this. This is a, this is a Hamilton family court judge you just referenced. Uh, talk about the mother and the father. What was the dispute here? Walk us through it, Kevin. Sure. So, uh, I mean, I think it's important to note that in this case, Justice Pazarax uh, acknowledges that both parents are excellent parents. So we don't have a history, um, for example, of, you know, one of the parents perhaps not having the children's best interest in mind or being neglectful or something to that or having, you know, an unreasonable position. We we don't have that in this case. Um, And he he acknowledges that. Uh, So from going from that, he then assesses the evidence that the various that each party put forward to support their position, whether it be, um, you know, the father is seeking the children to be vaccinated or the mother who was opposed to it. And I think what really he decides is neither of the evidence or the or the information that primarily it seems was provided um, by the parties that they downloaded from the internet that it was accessible to them was really helpful in making in making a decision he says you know the father puts forth these government uh, you know um, uh, websites and, and information saying that uh, children being vaccinated is, is a good thing and we encourage it it's it's effective and it's safe and then the mother puts forth, you know, various um, uh, things she's found on the Internet. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned Dr. Robert Malone. That was one of the, the sources that she put forward. Um, he's very controversial, as you mentioned. That's correct. 
And so she puts she put information forward to the opposite, suggesting there's concerns, there's side effects. She even provided the um, fact sheet from Pfizer, who, of course, is a, a manufacturer of one of the va- uh, vaccines for, for COVID-19. So I think Justice Pazaret says, you know, uh, I, I can take judicial notice, certainly, of certain things, but I don't think the information here is helpful to me um, on either side. However, he does note that the mother's information is more thought-provoking, he says, more, um, you know, uh, helpful to her position than simply the government uh, releases that the father has uh, provided. And so ultimately, he says, you know, the mother has a history of being a, a good parent. Uh, she's, she's provided some information. It's, it's not it's not determined. Right. It's not determinative for, for, for my decision, but it's certainly more helpful than what the father has provided. And uh, I think what's really a strong uh, position um, to assist the mother is that the children themselves are expressing an opinion that they do not want to be vaccinated. And that's an opinion that... Right. Um, has does shows no sign of influence by the mother. It's, it's they're mature enough to express their own opinion. Justice Pazaretz takes notice of that, and there's no indication that the mother has you know influenced them to express that opinion. And then I think that's that's probably the the, the most the most powerful um, the, uh, factor in in Justice Pazaretz ultimately. That decision. So, so Kevin Caspers, uh, associate lawyer at uh, Shulman Part- and Partners, what's the significance of this? So the kids don't have to be vaccinated. You got a judge basically using as as trustworthy evidence Dr. Robert Malone. Anti-vaxxers love to quote this guy. Uh, he's been widely debunked by the medical establishment, although he's got significant credentials. I understand that he's a real. You know, people say, "Oh, I saw that guy in the Joe Rogan podcast." So this is where he gets his notoriety from. Uh, but what is the significance of this case in terms of the vaccine debate? I mean, I think before I do, I do answer that, I think it's important to note that it's not that Justice Pazaretz relies on this, let's call him a controversial uh, medical source, Dr. Robert Malone. I think he just says that Dr. Malone's um, position and his articles, he clearly has established credentials. He's a doctor. He's very, he's, he has a history of being involved in the, the development of the, of the, uh, mRNA vaccine, but it's more thought provoking than what the father has provided. And he's saying he's not ta- he's, he's not deciding which side is correct, vaccination or not vaccination. That's not the that's not appropriate for this case. And furthermore, the decision that he's making is not a dis- blanket decision that now says, well, I think children should not be vaccinated or uh, children, you know, he, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying in this particular case, and his threshold is best interest of the children. I believe that it's in the best interest of the interest of the children, and given their opinions, that they not be vaccinated. So I think what we're going to take from this, and and what's going to happen is that it's going to force the courts, it's going to for, force judges, it's going to force litigants to really consider their specific circumstances when they if they choose and when they go to court over the issue of vaccination, it's going to be, it's going to be determined a case by case basis. That that's it. Like this all of a sudden means that if you want, if you know, in these legal disputes about vaccination, these family disputes, it's a much more complicated argument than might people might think. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think you're absolutely right. It's no longer a, 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 um, idea that, 
hey, everybody, vaccination is good for everyone, regardless of your circumstances. No, that's not that's absolutely not what um, this case stands for. It's it stands for, um, okay. what are the circumstances? What are the you know, of the parents, of the family, of the children? And what are their what are their preferences? And then taking all those things into account and then making a determination. It's not simply um, we simply can't say that, you know, vaccination is good for everyone under right. every. And that's really what Justice Pazarat's decision stands for. It, it is a remarkable moment when people think, you know, oh, you're not vaccinating your parents, uh, your kids. Is that an act of negligence? That would be one people think, oh, you're just negligence. But. Uh, this is a whole different ballgame now. As you say, there's a lot more factors. Uh, Kevin Casper's uh, senior associate lawyer at Shulman & Partners. Thank you, Kevin. Really fascinating case. We've got to keep covering it. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Uh, coming up, I'm going to take a break. I, I really need this. I don't know about you. I don't know about you. Are you, are you done with uh, the heavy, heavy news? You just need a story about inspiration. A story of a, of a guy surviving on a life raft for five days lost at sea. Don Cavers is 77. He's a grandfather from B.C. He was in the Caribbean. He was uh, leaving Colombia for Puerto Rico on a sailboat. And when what happened next is... Incredible, literally shipwreck, hit a reef, boat sinking. What happens next? You're going to meet the man. Stay with us. When important decisions are made, we report. Here's Evan Solomon. Welcome back to the program. Talk about an extraordinary moment. 77-year-old guy Don Cavers is on his sailboat in the Caribbean, and things go wrong. And he survives basically on, what, a bag of nachos? Well, let's find out. Uh, A lost-at-sea story, Don Cavers uh, from British Columbia, five and a half days trapped on a raft. Mr. Cavers, thanks for joining us, sir. You're most welcome. I can't. Happy, the story's happy just, to be able to. Well, I'm, I'm, believe me, I'm really happy you're able to. Okay, let sail us through this journey. What, what, where were you, and what, what happened? Oh, I bought a boat in Colombia on the on the internet and went south. Uh, it was about eight months before I could even go and see the boat, but uh, because of travel restrictions. But went down, spent uh, close to a month doing some needed repairs, and set off to meet my son in Puerto Rico. Okay, so now, um, now Don, you're, you, you, you know how to sail, though. You're not like, uh, you know what, maybe I should sail from Colombia to Puerto Rico. You, you have some sailing history. Oh, yeah, I've sailed up and down the West Coast a fair bit, and I've sailed in the Caribbean before. Okay, um, so you but, know what you're doing. Uh, uh, yeah, I have a pretty good idea what I'm doing, but this was an unfamiliar <laughs> boat and uh, turned out to have some issues. Okay, so what happened? Uh, well, headed out, uh, day one went great. Uh, the second night out, um, the, there was pretty big seas and it turned out that there was a design, what I would call a, uh, a previous owner designed in defect on the boat where the, uh, bow locker, chain locker, uh, was basically a water scoop. So 
I was taking some pretty good waves over the bow, and uh, boat was getting a bit sluggish. Looked below, had several inches of water over the floorboards. Uh, headed off to get, you know, in a different direction, just so the waves weren't breaking over the boat. And uh, it all went well until the next morning when the whole electrical system shut down. And then I spent several days sailing on compass only until uh, I unfortunately fell asleep at a bad time. Okay, so you're saying that you're sailing from like. Columbia, South America, basically northeast, I guess, to Puerto Rico, right? How long is the journey supposed to take you? Uh, about five days. Five days. And so this is like day two. You're taking on water. You fall asleep. And then what happens? Well, I take on water. I got myself pretty exhausted bailing water uh, and then uh, turned north rather than northeast to, so I wasn't in the head seas. Uh, to keep the water off the decks, uh, got the boat dried out, but then the uh, the electrical system shut down. So then I hand steered for two days, uh, just with taking brief brief breaks. Uh, could, 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 could you like call water. people? Are you uh, like at this point? I'm speaking to Don. Care when this is going on? Do you have like radio say, "Hey guys, I'm taking on water. I'm in deep trouble here." Uh, no, everything everything got wet. Uh, it turned out this boat leaked from every port, everything. So all my backup uh, communications, like I had sat phones and stuff with me, but everything got wet because I didn't have the foresight to have it in dry bags. Oh, my God. So you literally find yourself in a leaky boat in heavy seas and everything's knocked out and you're alone. Uh, yeah. So I can't, I don't know where I am and nobody else knows where I am because... I've had to change course from where I was originally scheduled to go. Oh, man. So then what happens? Uh, so then uh, after two days, I managed to, on a spare battery and hooking it up through solar panels to get an autopilot working so that I could work on the rest of the system. But I never did manage to get anything else working on it. And uh, so sailed just on a compass heading north uh, for another three days. And... Uh, then had uh, a little bump in the night after I fell asleep. So ended up on a reef uh, just on the southwest uh, side of Cuba, um, off offshore. There's an offshore island and reef system there. So you've, you've so now sailed. Take to the life route. Holy crap! You've you've laced, like you've basically essentially sailed, I guess, through like I guess you passed the west of Jamaica and, the, and through the Caymans, and that's when now you're near Cuba. Holy crap! Yeah, well, I'm 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 a fair ways west of them. Uh, you know, I knew I knew if I maintained a northerly heading, yeah, that I get the land. I get the land eventually, and uh, was trying to avoid Honduras because there's lots of piracy problems there these days, and I avoided it a bit too far. Oh my and, god! Uh, and then your boats. You, so you hit a reef and your boat sinks. How fast uh, did yeah. it start sinking? Oh, it started pretty fast, um, but I was fortunately only in about 10 feet of water there. So on that part of the reef, I went over the, the shallower part of the reef and in into about 10 feet of water. So I had about five minutes to gather some stuff up and, and get. I launched the dinghy and the life raft because I knew the life raft uh, was out of certification. And I knew the dinghy floated, so I put everything in the dinghy first and then uh, got the life raft in and it was fine, so transferred everything into it and cast off because the wind was uh, blowing me into the surf. <laughs> you sound pretty cool about this, Don Cavers. 
like, are you scared at this point when your boat sinks in the middle of the bloody ocean? Uh, well, as you can imagine, I was more than a bit concerned. Um, but, uh, you know, if you don't keep your cool, you're in trouble. And uh, I was a private pilot before, and uh, so kind of get used to keeping your cool. So what would you have but, on the raft uh, to, to, to survive? What did you get in the raft? Uh, well, a bag of churros, which are uh, the, the uh, Colombian equivalent of, of nacho chips, which are much better than the nacho chips you get here, I have to say. And a pack of crackers and uh, a 20-liter jug of water, which was the critical piece. Yeah. Okay. By the way, people are asking how big your sailboat. Your sailboat's gone. How, how long was that boat? It was 38 feet. So you have a 38-footer. It's gone. Now you're in the raft. You got your churros. The key is you got your 20 liters of water. How long were you at sea? So what happens for the next five and a half days? Uh, well, I had a, a, an EPIRB, um, which I flipped on. And, or I thought I flipped on, uh, following the directions, but it turned out there was a second stage to the directions that wasn't clear. Uh, so the first three days, I watched my EPIRB blink and strobe, um, but it turned out it wasn't sending a signal until I was messing with it uh, at the end of the third day and found that there was a second stage to actually turning it on for satellite operation, not just for local, local man- search and rescue. So uh, once that was on, then uh, just bobbed around out there, uh, rationing food, having a couple of crackers a meal and, or a couple of nacho chips a meal. Uh, and you lost, caught some fish? Lost a lot of weight. Uh, the, last, the very last morning, I discovered that the drogue, which was a, a basically a, a, looks like a, looks like a, uh, uh, an aircraft uh, windsock, but closed mesh dragging behind which dragged behind the the raft to slow it down and prevent it from being flipped around uh turned out it was catching little fish and uh, i didn't find that out until the last morning and uh so i had uh, i had sashimi for breakfast i got 30 seconds here but then and then who discovers you uh a bulk carrier called the bulk pangea was contacted by u.s coast guard once a uh started getting uh, pings on the oh. on the beacon so yeah 700 foot boat pulls alongside me in a seven foot raft and and drops the line you are oh my god don i could talk to you for don caver 77 year old from british columbia five and a half days trapped in a raft survives why you're as cool as ever thanks